you uh, have a Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of John uh, in the providence of God. It was uh, 36 years ago this Sunday that just shy of my 30th birthday, I began in ministry with a lot of fear and trembling and uh, feelings of overwhelming inadequacy. And I started in John 36 years ago, and uh, I, uh, by God's grace alone, here I am, still feeling overwhelmed with inadequacy, but at least I've been doing it now for 36 years, and God has been very faithful and gracious to me, and uh, I trust that God will use this study in, in John to uh, help all of us get to know Jesus in a better way. There should be an outline in your bulletin. As usual, there are the printed messages at both exits. You can grab one now or on the way out if you'd rather. And uh, those are on the church website as well as the uh, audio messages later will be on the website as well. We want to look today at the nature and the purpose of uh, John's Gospel. And I've often said that the most important, crucial question that any person needs to answer is the question that Jesus asked his disciples that day. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And you'll remember that Peter, not of himself, Jesus made that clear, you didn't come up with this answer, Peter, But my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Peter gave that great answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If if Jesus is who the Bible portrays him to be, and who he claimed to be, if he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, if he is the Son of the living God, then the only sensible response to that truth is, Certainly to believe in Him as your Savior and Lord and to uh, live all of your life following Him. On the other hand, if Jesus is not who He claimed to be and who the Bible portrays Him to be, then you're really wasting your time being a Christian because you're following a fictitious character, one somebody made up or a bunch of people made up. And because of that, Who do you say that I am is the crucial question for every person to answer in life. I believe the Apostle John may have been thinking of Peter's question, or I mean Peter's confession, Jesus' question, uh, when he explained to us toward the end of his gospel, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, why he wrote his gospel. Sometimes you have to figure that out on your own when you read a book in the Bible. But John very plainly says, all right, folks, this is why I wrote. Therefore, he says, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, here's why, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So John isn't trying to persuade you to believe in some general vague truth about Jesus, such, well, I believe He was a good man, or I believe He was a great teacher, or great moral 
man or a prophet of God, John specifically tells you what he wants you to believe. That Jesus was the Christ. That word means the Messiah, which word means the anointed one. The one predicted all through the Hebrew Scriptures as the Savior of Israel. And that He is the Son of God, which means God in human flesh, as we'll see when we get to chapter 5. And the pinnacle of faith in the Gospel of John comes in chapter 20, just before John gives that purpose statement, when Thomas, who had been doubting, sees the risen Christ, and he, he exclaims, My Lord and my God. And that's where John wants to bring all of us, to bow before Jesus where we say, Jesus, You are my Lord, You are my God. And he wants us to know that in Jesus we see the unseen God. In John 1.14, for example, John declares of Jesus, And the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelled among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or then jumping down to John 1.18, he, he adds, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Or then in chapter 14, when um, Philip asks, Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus responds, uh, John 14.9, Have I been with you? Uh, have I so, been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's just an astounding claim of deity on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John wants his readers, he wants us to know who Jesus is, and to believe in Jesus as He really is. And the result of believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, John says, is that you might have life in His name. And by life, as we'll come to see, it's a theme throughout John, He means primarily eternal life. Life that is lived in the presence of God beginning now and going on throughout all of eternity. And since the alternative to eternal life is eternal condemnation or judgment, what the Bible, John himself in Revelation, calls the second death, you can see why the crucial question in life to answer is, who do you say that I am? Because that question determines one's eternal destiny. Now, what I'm going to do today as a way of introduction to this book is to use John's purpose for writing as kind of a framework to give an overview of the book. And uh, if you want more depth, obviously I'm just skimming the surface here this morning. There are literally thousands of pages written in the uh, commentaries on introductions to the Gospel of John. And uh, I, I've tried just to glean some of the highlights and put them together into this message. But... I want to limit our, our study today to this statement that the Gospel of John is a selective, symbolic, 
eyewitness account of the person and ministry of Jesus, written so that you may believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, and thus have life in his name. Now, there are a lot of different ways you can outline John's gospel, so this isn't inspired, but here's sort of a broad outline. I put it in your notes, I think, that gives the flow of the text. The first 18 verses are called the prologue to John, and John there presents Jesus as the Son of God, the object of belief. The key verse might be verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And um, in that prologue, as we'll see, John presents basically every idea he's going to unravel throughout the whole book. It's, it's a masterful opening to the book. Then from chapter 1, verse 19, going down the bulk of the book through the end of chapter 12, verse 50, is testimony for belief in the Son of God. And maybe a theme verse there is the comment in verse 41 where, um, is it Nathaniel? Or, or no, it's Andrew, uh, finds Peter. And he says, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. And so... Uh, testimony. The first part of that testimony, up through chapter 4, shows initial belief in the Son of God, but then opposition begins to mount, starting in chapter 5. And uh, 5 through 12, there is mounting opposition against Jesus until finally the religious leaders are determined to kill him. There's an interlude in chapter 13 through 17, and there we would title it, The Teaching of the Son of God for His Followers. And a key verse might be verse 1 of chapter 13, He loved them to the end. And it's that wonderful upper room discourse that doesn't occur in any of the other Gospels, and just fabulous teaching. Can't wait till we get there. Then... Chapter 18 and 19 are the tragedy of unbelief in the Son of God as Jesus is betrayed, arrested, crucified. And uh, there a theme verse might be that of the Jews saying, We have no king but Caesar. What a tragedy. They disowned the king of the Jews, Jesus, and owned Caesar as their king. And then in chapter 20, we have the triumph of the Son of God. That's the resurrection chapter. And uh, as I said, the climax of that chapter is Thomas proclaiming, My Lord and my God. And then chapter 21, we could call the epilogue. And uh, that involves two things. There's the restoration of Peter. And uh, there is the role of John. And perhaps a key phrase there is tend my sheep. Now, many authors mention that the Gospel of John is kind of like a pool where a little toddler can wade and yet at the same time an elephant can go swim. Um, in other words, John is both simple and at the same time very profound. Uh, a, a child can understand and respond to the simplicity of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What a wonderful verse. 
But then on another level, scholars have written uh, volumes and volumes that grapple with some of the deeper issues in the Gospel of John. And so, uh, wherever you're at spiritually, I trust there will be something for you in the Gospel of John. If you've never investigated who Jesus is, that's new to you. You've never really studied John. Uh, you've never put your trust in him. I pray that as we study this book, God will open your eyes. You will see Jesus for who he is. And you will believe in him so that you may have life in his name. On the other hand, if you're uh, a new Christian, there's a lot in John to strengthen your faith. Uh, because there are simple truths to grasp in John. Uh, on the other hand, if you've been a Christian all your life and you're getting up in years, well, there are pools you can dive into and uh, be the elephant. Swim in John all you want because John goes deep. And so there's something for all of us. This morning I want to uh, investigate, though, by uh, looking at that statement. And the first part of it is, that the Gospel of John is a selective account of the person and ministry of Jesus. Maybe sometimes you've wondered, well, why do we have four Gospels anyway? Why not just one? And as you may know, none of the Gospels are what we would call a biography, where it begins with the person's birth and their childhood and works up and goes through every detail of their lives until the time of their death. But rather, each of the Gospels are selective and interpretive accounts of the life of Jesus and his ministry and his person. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, and that word synoptic means uh, the same view because they're very similar in material that they use and cover, and reams have been written on whether they're using a common source or one of them is the first and all of that, but um, each has a different slant. Matthew, one of the twelve, he was the tax collector who came to Jesus. Matthew wrote as a Jew for the Jews, presenting Jesus as the king of Israel. Uh, Mark is the shortest gospel, and uh, Mark probably wrote from Rome under Peter's influence. And his theme is Jesus as the Son of Man, the servant who came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. You may not know that if you go by chapters, because it only has 24 chapters, and Matthew has 28, and Acts has 28. But by volume of content, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, and uh probably the only book written by a Gentile in the whole Bible. Luke was a physician and a co-worker with the Apostle Paul, and uh, he wrote the book of Acts. But his gospel is aimed at the Gentiles, and it emphasizes Christ's humanity. If you're interested, we have a whole uh, series of, I think, over 130 messages on Luke on the website. John, though, comes at it with 93% original material that is not in the other Gospels. So John is taking a completely different slant. And as we've seen, John acknowledges in verse 30 of chapter 20 that there were many other signs that Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, 
which are not written in this book. John's saying, I, I'm picking some. There are more. And then he ends his gospel, chapter 21, verse 25, and says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so John is selective in his approach. Um, Most scholars think he probably wrote sometime in the 80s or early 90s A.D., after all the other Gospels were written. He probably knew of those Gospels and didn't feel a need to duplicate what they had written. As we'll see next time, John begins his Gospel in eternity with Jesus as God, the Word, Jesus as Creator. John omits many things that the other Gospels include, many important things. There is no mention of Jesus' birth. There is no mention of Jesus' baptism or His temptation in the wilderness by the devil. There is no list in John of the twelve apostles or of their being commissioned to ministry. Uh, There are no stories in John of Jesus casting out demons. Uh, There are no parables in John unless you want to class uh, the story of Jesus being the door to the sheepfold in chapter 10 as a parable. Um, In chapter 1, John tells us that uh, he saw Jesus' glory, and yet he never tells us about the transfiguration, which is when he saw Jesus' glory with Peter and James there on that on that mountain. Um, He includes Jesus' promise in chapter 14 that He's going to prepare a place for us in heaven and that He'll come again and receive us unto Himself, but He omits the long prophetic discourses of Jesus that we find in the other Gospels. Um, John gives us the Longest and most detailed accounts of what went on in the upper room on the night Jesus was betrayed, and yet he omits the uh, Lord's Supper, which was kind of the focal point of that night. There's no mention of it in John 13 through 17. Um, He never uh, mentions Jesus' agony in the garden when he sweat great drops of blood. But interestingly, it's only in John's Gospel that we learn that it was Peter who took his sword and whacked off the ear of Malchus, the uh, high priest servant, and that's the only place we know his name, probably because Peter was dead and gone by then. The earlier Gospels did not identify him by name. John does. Um, In John, Jesus tells the, uh, the risen Jesus tells Mary that he is going to ascend to his father and to go and tell the disciples he's going to ascend to his father. And yet there's no account of the ascension in John. And so he omits many um, things that the other Gospels include. Then there are things, of course, that John includes that are unique to him. Uh, His direct assertion in chapter 1 that Jesus is the eternal God who created all things. That's only in John. Uh, John alone tells us that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Uh, John tells us of the first miracle when Jesus turned the water into wine in chapter 2. John alone includes the interview with Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3, and Jesus and the woman at the well in chapter 4. 
he tells us of the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. And he alone tells us of the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. Um, and then of the man born blind in chapter 9. That's only in John. Also, only in John is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Um, John alone tells us about Jesus taking a towel on the night he was betrayed in a basin and washing the disciples' feet. And, of course, that whole upper room discourse is unique to John, um, where he promises that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will come and dwell with us. John also records the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in John 17. Uh, that's really sacred ground when we get there, just entering in to hear Jesus praying to the Father right before he goes to the cross. And he prays for us, by the way, too. And then John alone tells us about Thomas and his doubts uh, that he had after the resurrection. And John tells us about the disciples' encounter with the risen Jesus there on the shore of, Lake Gal- of the Sea of Galilee when they had the meal of fish with him and he restored Peter. And so John carefully chose all of these events to give us this unique insider's portrait of our Savior But the point is, John is a selective gospel. Maybe when we get to heaven and time is not of essence then, we can say, John, John, would you meet with FCF and just tell us all those other things that you didn't write in your book? You know, the things that uh, could fill the whole world with books about Jesus. The second thing to note about the gospel of John is that it's a symbolic account of the person and ministry of Jesus. And John just brims with symbolic language that makes you stop and think about the deeper meaning of what he's saying. Now, I don't mean to imply that John bends the historical truth to make a story. No. John reports things truly, historically true. He makes that point later at the end of the book. Uh, But often, John sees a deeper significance behind these true historical events. Um, The other Gospels refer to Jesus' miracles as either miracles or wonders. John never uses that term. He uses exclusively the term signs. These are signs that Jesus did. Now, a sign always points to something else, doesn't it? You know, the bathroom is that away. Well, you don't think the bathroom is where the sign is. It's pointing you to something. Or city is that way, and you follow the sign to that. And John, um, as we saw in chapter 20, verse 30, says, many other signs Jesus also performed. He could have picked hundreds, but he picked seven, not counting the resurrection and not counting the um, miraculous draft of fishes there in chapter 21 after he's risen. Um, The first one, changing the water to wine, chapter 2. Healing the nobleman's son, chapter 4, is the second. Third, healing the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5. 
Fourth, and this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. Walking on the water uh, in chapter uh, 6. Healing the man born blind in chapter 9. And then raising Lazarus in chapter 11. Now, in at least three of those miracles, you don't have to guess what is John getting at here? What is the sign behind the miracle? Because Jesus tells us. For example, after he feeds the 5,000 in John 6:35, Jesus plainly states, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Before he opens the eyes of the man born blind in chapter 9 and chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That's pretty obvious then when he proves it by opening the eyes of the man born blind. And then before he raised Lazarus from the dead, as you probably know, in chapter 11, he uh, says to Martha, 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now, those are three, by the way, of seven I am statements that occur in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am thus and so. Uh, the other four are, I am the door of the sheep, John 10:7. I am the good shepherd. That occurs in John 10, verse 11, and he repeats it in verse 14. Or the familiar, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14:6, And then in chapter 15, verses 1 and 5, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And in each case, again, there's symbolism there, isn't there? We don't take it literally, Jesus is a vine. Uh, there's something there, spiritual truth, that's um, symbolic that we're supposed to understand and think about. Uh, How does that relate to me? What does that tell me about Jesus? John also includes a number of key words that he repeats often for emphasis that have symbolic significance. John wrote, as we've seen, so that you might have life in his name. And life is a uh, key theme in John. Uh, We'll see in verse 4 of chapter 1, life is in Jesus and we'll see, as John 14:6 said in 11:25, he himself is the life. And related to that concept, in chapter three, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs new life. He needs to be born again through the new birth. Uh, physical life, in other words, is a picture of spiritual life. And Jesus came to give that new life, spiritual life, to those who believe in him. The opposite of that, of course, is that those who do not believe in Jesus do not possess life. They are dead in their sins, and therefore they need Jesus' resurrection power to raise them from death to life in order that they might uh, have eternal life. Another symbol in John, and he uses it often, is light and darkness. In verse 4, John will say that the life in Jesus was the light 
of men. And that light shines in the darkness. In verse 9 of chapter 1, Jesus is the true light. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 12, as we saw, Jesus is the light of the world. But then in chapter 3, John says that men loved darkness. Men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. In chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. In the scene in the upper room, when Judas left the upper room to betray Jesus, I think that John is telling you more than the time of day when he says, Judas went out, and then he adds, and it was night. It was certainly dark and night when Judas went out to betray the Son of God, the light of the world. The odd thing is this, John never mentions the three hours of darkness on the cross. All three other Gospels include that. John, for some reason, omits that even though he has this dominant theme of light and darkness. There's another key symbolic word, and that's world. Um, World occurs uh, 78 times in the Gospel of John. We'll see it in verse 10. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, in the first two instances, that word in that verse just means the earth and everything in it, including the people. But in the third instance, John shifts the meaning. The world did not know him points to the world in sin, the world in darkness that did not see the light of Jesus when he came. Um, They are under the dominion of what Jesus, uh, three times in this gospel, calls the ruler of this world, Satan. And in this sense, the world hates both Jesus and his disciples, which is a theme in this gospel. Now, world can just refer to the world of people in general, such as God so loved the world, or In chapter 12, the Pharisees are frustrated because they say the world has gone after him. In other words, they think they're losing their following because multitudes are going after Jesus. And then in that high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus asked the followers, I mean the Father, not to take his followers out of the world, he says, but to keep them from the evil one. And then he adds, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Uh, There are a number of other concepts that uh, John repeats for emphasis to help us think about their significance. He uses the word witness 14 times as a noun and 33 times, often translated testify, um, as a verb. And the reason that's significant is the other Gospels combined only use the noun four times and the verb twice. John begins by saying in verse 7 that John, and in this Gospel, John the Baptist is always called John, never John the Baptist. Uh, John, he says, verse 7, came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. 
And there are seven witnesses in John to Christ. Uh, There is the Father. There's the witness of Christ himself. There's the witness of the Holy Spirit. There are Jesus' works that testify of him. There are the scriptures that bear witness of him. There is John the Baptist. And then there are a variety of human witnesses, such as the disciples, the Samaritan woman, and the multitude. And these witnesses, of course, establish the truth. When you bring witnesses into court, you're trying to establish the truth. And truth is another key concept in John, uh, 25 times in John. It's only once in Matthew. It's three times each in Mark and Luke. 25 times in John, he emphasizes the truth. These things are true. Uh, Two other concepts that have significance in John because he repeats them are that Jesus was sent by God the Father. Thirty-three times that phrase occurs in John. Jesus was sent. My Father sent me to this earth. And he was sent to do the Father's will and to do it at the appointed hour. And that word hour occurs twelve times with reference to the cross. Jesus told the disciples in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He emphasizes in uh, chapter 5 repeatedly to the unbelieving Jews that the Father had sent Him and that His works testified to that fact. Even though these evil men refused to believe in Him, and they finally succeeded in killing him, John makes the point, everything was done on the divine timetable. In other words, these evil men did not mess up the sovereign plan of God. And to make that point, John uses that word, our. Um, The hostile Jews sought to seize Jesus in chapter 7, verse 30, and again in chapter 8, verse 20. And John says they could not do so. Here's why because his hour had not yet come. See, there's an appointed hour that God ordained before the foundation of the world. And then as the crucifixion draws near, Jesus in chapter 12, verse 23, declares, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Speaking of the cross. Well, I don't have, excuse me, I don't have time. I could go on and talk about flesh in spirit, love and hate, knowledge and know. Um, I'll say more on the key phrase believe in just a moment, which is another theme in John. But my point is, John is both symbol- or selective and John is symbolic. And so we have to watch for these symbolic and repeated words and probe the meaning of them. The third thing to note is that the Gospel of John is an eyewitness account of the person and ministry of Jesus. As we saw in chapter 20, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed, note, in the presence of His disciples. They saw these things. They were the witnesses to the events that John records. And as I said, that establishes the truth of these things. John is not weaving a yarn here. He's not telling you a fictional story or dressing it up a little to make Jesus look better than he was. 
This is eyewitness testimony. Now, it's not surprising because of that that liberals dispute that John wrote John. Of course, liberals dispute that Paul wrote Paul, and you know how that goes. They, <coughs> they need to undermine the authenticity of Scripture. J. Vernon McGee, uh, if you ever listen to good old J. Vernon McGee, you know his humor. He says he took a class in seminary on the authorship of John, and uh, he said the professor, after a whole semester, finally concluded the course by saying that he believed that John wrote John. And there was a wag in the class who said, well, he said, I believe that John wrote John before I took the class, and I believe that John wrote John now that I've finished the class, so I just wasted the whole semester. And that's kind of how I feel when I read all of these commentaries on, did John write John? You wade through dozens and dozens of pages and uh, and let me just suffice it to say this. I think there is credible both internal and external evidence to show that John wrote John. The internal evidence just points to many, many indicators that the book was written by an eyewitness and that the eyewitness was John who refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, the external witness... Uh, refers to the early church fathers, men like uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria, and they claim that John wrote this gospel. Uh, Irenaeus, in particular, he lived toward the end of the second century, and uh, he tells how in his early days he used to sit in Polycarp's home. You remember Polycarp? Polycarp is the one who was martyred at age 82 or 4. He was in his 80s, and he was going to be fed to the lions in the Colosseum. And they gave him a chance to get out of it if he would deny Christ. And he made a famous statement to the effect that, My Lord has stood with me for all these 80-some years. How could I now deny him? And he was fed to the lions. But Irenaeus <clears throat> says how he used to sit in Polycarp's house and he would listen to him tell about his days when he would listen to John and to others who had been eyewitnesses of Christ. And uh, Irenaeus says categorically that after the other Gospels were written, John also wrote his Gospel while living in Ephesus. I mean, what further evidence do we need that John wrote John? And so it's an eyewitness Account and we can count it as true. And then finally, coming to John's great purpose, the Gospel of John is written so that you may believe that Jesus uh, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that thus you might have life in his name. And as I said, John doesn't just want you believing in generalities, you know, in, about Jesus. He wants you to believe specific content, truth, about Jesus, who he is. He is the Christ, the one that the Old Testament from Genesis 3 on predicted over and over again. Jesus is that Christ. And he is God in human flesh, the Son of God. And that believing you will have eternal life then in all that Jesus is. And that's what his name means. The name stands for all that the person is. But John makes a very clear point, we'll see. Believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior is not an automatic response to the truth. 
Because we'll see in John many who hear the truth and they set themselves against Jesus, intent on destroying him. And the climax of that, and it's a real head-scratcher, is when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who's been in the tomb for three or four days and is beginning to stink, is raised from the dead, comes forth, and it says, many who saw that believed, but, incredibly, many who saw it went away and told the Pharisees, and they became all the more determined to put Jesus to death. Go figure. I mean, here is the the resurrection and the life who can speak the dead to life, and they're going to kill him. Sin is not rational, is it? And John wants us to see that and to warn us so that we submit to Jesus. John uses the verb believe 98 times in this gospel. So he's just kind of hammering this thing, isn't he? Hammering, hammering, hammering. I want you to believe. Interestingly, he uses the noun zero times. I don't know why. But for John, faith must have content, and that content must be true. In other words, you have to believe the truth as John reveals it about who Jesus is. And then, as you um, commit yourself to Jesus in faith, you enter into a personal relationship with him. And so faith for John is not just an intellectual thing. Oh, yeah, I believe that. And you go live in your life the same way. John will show how faith changes your direction in life, as it did with John himself. And so to believe in Jesus means to trust your eternal destiny to what Jesus did on the cross to save you from your sins. It means to submit your life to Jesus as your Lord so that you follow him in obedience to his commands. We saw in Romans, the obedience of faith. In other words, genuine faith results in obedience. John believes the same thing, of course. And we'll see in John that it's possible to have a superficial faith, a faith that does not save you. Because in chapter 8 especially, we will see that the Jews who believed in Jesus uh, are opposed to him. And they even accuse him of having a demon. Now, Another key concept about faith in John is this. It is both initial and it is ongoing. In other words, you don't just believe and then move on in life and not believe again. Um, You believe more as you learn more of who Jesus is. And so your faith grows as you come to understand more fully the marvelous person and work of Christ. For example, we'll see in chapter 1, The disciples, when they first meet Jesus, believe in him. And then you get to the first miracle in chapter 2. And what does John say? So the disciples saw this miracle and they came to believe in Jesus. What? They already believe. That's right. They believe again. And then when you get, for example, to chapter 11, and Jesus is deliberately stays where he is, lets Lazarus die, He says to the disciples, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Now let's go. And he says the same thing to Martha. She gives a great confession. Lord, I've believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God and so on. And, And then 
she gets to the tomb and she says, uh, Lord, he stinks. You know, we better not open the tomb. And Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believe you'll see the, the glory of God? So Martha believed, but Martha needs to believe. And then you get to the great climax in chapter 20 when John and Peter run to the tomb and John stoops and he looks in. Peter goes in first. Then John goes in and it says, he saw and he believed. And then you have Thomas. Obviously, Thomas believed in Jesus to follow him. And yet he doubted. And then Jesus says, Thomas, reach out your hand and touch me and see. And he says, I don't want you to be unbelieving, but to be believing. So belief begins at the moment when you see who Jesus is and you trust him as your Savior and Lord. But it doesn't stop there. You go on seeing more and more and more of who Jesus is and your faith grows and grows in him. And so the first crucial question you need to ask yourself is, who do you say that Jesus is? Have you answered that question? And then the second crucial question is, have you believed in him then so that now you can say, by God's grace, I have eternal life? And if not, why not? And, and if you have, then I pray that uh, as we go through John, you will believe, and you will believe again, and you will believe again, and your faith in Jesus will grow as we study this great, inspired gospel of John. Dear Father, we come before you and thank you for entrusting us with this blessed truth, truth from one who laid his head in your bosom, who saw all of these things, and for a while doubted, and yet when he saw the empty tomb, he believed and he conveyed these truths to us. And I pray that if any are here who have never seen the glory of Christ, that this would open their eyes to see Jesus. And that rather than becoming angry because they see that he wants to be their Lord, they will submit and follow him. And we ask this to your namesake. Amen.